0: Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL doing business and doing life.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the do business, do life podcast. This is Kristen Shea. And last week, Brad said something to myself, to our team that really challenged us to do some pretty painful stuff in the moment, but 100% led us to creating a better outcome for the advisors we serve. And just speaking for myself, it is something that will stick with me for the rest of my life. So I want to share it with you because I think it sets a really great state of mind going into this conversation with Michael Kitses. So the story that Brad shared with us was passed along to him from a legendary expert on presentations and speaking, both inside our industry at seminars and outside, where this expert's daughter had a chance to interview the writer of the Grammy, Tony Pulitzer award-winning play, Hamilton, for her thesis and master's degree. And the biggest piece of advice that this college student got from Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer of Hamilton, was to not be afraid to kill your kittens. He's not literally talking about actual live kittens, okay? For Miranda, that meant, cutting songs and cutting scenes that he loved, that he created, that he poured his heart and soul into out of a play that overall he was extremely emotionally attached to because he knew that in order to get Hamilton to the success that it would ultimately hit, he was going to have to quote unquote, kill some kittens. Okay. So listening to this conversation with Michael Kitzes and Brad is all about the way I see it. This the whole time listening back to it this morning before getting ready to record this was like, wow, like people are advisor going to have to kill some kittens. It's time to kill some kittens. And if you can, if you come into this with an open mind, you're willing to potentially kill some kittens. You have so much potential to become a better advisor, a better leader, create better outcomes when you're interacting with both your prospects and your clients and ultimately live a life that you just love. So we explore a couple of huge topics about major changes happening inside our industry that are coming to fruition, whether you see it or not. Okay. Changes that have been happening and some incredible information that is going to challenge the way that you look at your business, your marketing, your client experience, what you share with your potential clients, how you spend your time and ultimately how you measure your success. The conversations here and some of the corresponding beliefs advisors tend to have about topics like going all in on a niche how you present your plan, what your plan is made up of, and whether or not you should make the leap from advisor to CEO are super timely and interesting. And coming into this conversation, I want you to be willing to kill your kittens to be willing to make changes and think differently and let go of the things that have worked in the past in pursuit of something better for your clients, your business, and your life. Now, Michael Kitsis needs no introduction, but for anyone in our industry who does not know or follow Michael's work, he is one of the most prolific content creators and thought leaders in financial services. Investopedia named him one of the most influential advisors in the United States. His blog Nerds IVU, hosted on Kitsis.com, has time and time again been ranked one of the best sources of information for financial advisors in the country, and if not one of the best, just straight up the best. And he also runs two podcasts, Kitsis and Carl, which is co-hosted with Carl Richard, creator of the New York Times Sketch Guy column and the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. So again, one of the most highly rated podcasts for financial advisors. Michael and Brad are old friends. This is an awesome conversation, a whole lot of information, a really short period of time. So really quick, before we get into the show, there's this one really fantastic piece of research from Kitsis' team that Michael and Brad discuss on today's show. To volume two of the Kits's report What actually contributes to advisor well being? And there are some insane stats in there that, again, might challenge you to kill some kittens in the absolute best and not literal way about advisor happiness, well being, and success based on metrics like your age, your size of your team, or your service team, if you're with an independent broker dealer, median client AUM, hours worked, if you're married, and a whole bunch more. It's super fascinating and so relevant to our mission here to help advisors create unlimited growth, freedom, and joy in their business and life instead of one or the other. So if you want the Kits's report, on advisor well being, you can grab it by texting seven, the number, not the word, to our DBDL Insider phone number, which is in the show notes, but I'll also give it to you now 785 800 3235. Just text the number seven, we'll shoot you a link to go ahead and grab it, along with a link to Kitsis's blog and other research on a whole bunch of other equally important topics. And in addition, just real quick to texting seven to our phone number to grab the report. If you haven't already, we have a way to simply join the DBDL Insider Group, which is where we give you access to behind-the-scenes content and opportunities and priority invitations in-person experiences. So while you have this DBDL Insider phone number up, shoot us another text with the letters DBDL all together. DBDL stands for Do Business, Do Life, and we're going to get you in the loop ASAP. It's only for big special occasions. I promise you there's absolutely no spamming here. Although I will say, because there are laws about texting, we will do the obligatory disclosure, messaging, and data rates may apply, you can reply with the word stop at any time to opt out of any potential messages that we may send to our insiders. Okay, so that's it. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, Brad's interview with Michael Kitsis.
0: Welcome to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. Here with special guest, Michael Kitsis. Glad to have you back on a podcast, Michael.
2: Absolutely. Good to be back with you on a podcast, Brad. Congratulations on new new podcast, new launch.
0: Thank you. Yeah. whole new chapter. So, you know, we all continue to evolve as life goes on. And I, I just want to start out. I know we had some cool conversations as I was stepping away from my prior chapter and you did, you know, much the same just a yeah. few years before me where you stepped away from the firm you worked at to really build your own brand and your own business. And, uh, you know, really cool to see how that's played out from my side. So thanks for the advice you gave me along the way.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm glad you're you're living the journey. <laughs> I was going to say living the dream. As we know, the dream has like some ups and downs and like roller coaster bumps you usually don't put in dream dreams, but it's a version of living the dream.
0: You know what? That's the truth. We were just in Austin and we do a big kickoff event every beginning of every year. We call it the launch event. And I shared the biggest lesson one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last two years of this entrepreneurial journey. And what I learned is it's a lot easier to coach entrepreneurs than it is to be one. <laughs> and I, I coached entrepreneurs wow. for about 13 years. So it's a lot yeah. easier observing. It's kind of like that professor that was never actually the business owner, but mm-hmm. teaches business, you know, and you're spot on. It comes with wow. a lot of ups and downs and waking up at four in the morning with 15 yeah. things on your mind. Uh, but you know what the journey has been worth it's been worth it. So well, now,
2: now I'm curious, like what was the biggest difference for you between what you saw from the coaching end and then what was different when you lived the journey?
0: I think a couple of things come to mind, the complexity. I mean, I was running a sales team in my prior life, team of six. And obviously, you know, any team you've got different personalities and you've got to figure out how to get that team to mesh and work together. Yeah. Uh, but we've we've gone from zero to just over 40 team members in two years here and the complexity of more personalities more divisions yeah. in the company not just focusing on the sales side and just feeling like you're getting pulled 15 different directions all at the same yeah. time lease the printer make sure the internet's working and it just it's easy to see why a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with yeah. you know higher divorce rates higher drug use higher alcohol use. Yeah. It's, it's like self-medicating the stress that comes along yeah. with the job. That's been one of the biggest ones. And the, the second one I'd say is just the emotions that come along with it. Um, I had a, a coach tell me like, the, the biggest thing with being a leader is navigating your own emotions first before you can help others navigate theirs. And just realizing that you need to be calm and confident as yeah. you lead a team. And oftentimes that's you modeling, helping them do that. And I think oftentimes when I was observing in the coaching, I'm like, oh, well, that's easy. This person isn't doing their job. They're not a good culture fit. You should just fire them. Yep. Easier said than done when you're in it, you know? And so those are a couple, a couple lessons at least. Yeah. I
2: I still remember like really early financial planning days and one of the like the first client situations where I was, I was analyzing a financial plan for a client who had a just young adult child in their twenties that had it's one of those not launching failure to launch scenarios and mm. like, just couldn't get them off of mom and dad's dole and, and out the door. And this was particularly, this was, this was 20 years ago where that was less common than today where right. there's a lot more boomeranging back home. And I, I just remember having this like internal conversation with one of the senior advisors it was just like, why don't they just cut them off? Like they just got to cut them off and give them a little tough love and get them out into the world. Like, come on, let's go. And then your yeah. the, the part, which is like, yeah, you don't have kids yet. Do you like you've, you've never actually tried having this conversation as a parent to the child that you've been, you know, invested into for at that point, 20 something years through everything that's in that parent child relationship. And then just say like, Oh yeah, tough love, So I'm going to kick you out of the house and hope you can figure all this stuff out. Like really easy to say when you're looking at a financial plan, not so similar when you're actually living it in practice. Like those, there's a lot of tough conversations that are a lot, a lot more straightforward to say what the conversation should be than to actually live in the, in the difficult conversation.
0: For sure. And, and I think that is also the, the flip side of that coin is the power of our industry and why great coaching You know, objectively, that parent's in the middle of their emotions. yeah, And that's one of the things that, you know, a great coach can help navigate that bridge of, hey, how do we start to have that conversation? That's, you know, in the end of the day, I think we all know as parents going to serve them better long-term right? and, uh, but yeah, when you're living it, um, uh, that coaching's a little, a little tougher to, to take action on. Yeah. Well, as we dive in, there's so much, like every time we get together, whether it's, you know, virtual. The, in Kansas City, like we did that one time, we always have way more to talk about than time. So I'm just going to dive in here and wrap it up if you're cool with that. Sure, absolutely. Let's, let's talk advisor. Okay. So the last time we connected was kind of COVID was going on, this whole kind of upside down world that most financial advisors were living in at the time was, wow, my, my normal face-to-face marketing appointments it's kind of non-existent right now. And yeah. I know one of the things that's always been really cool as I've followed, you know, your platform and everything you put out on the blog is you it's very technology forward. It's very like where the world is going. And literally all of finance was thrust into that. And yeah. one of the conversations I remember us having prior was it won't be the local financial advisor as yeah. this world evolves, it will be the best financial advisor. And I feel as if technology and digital and COVID forcing everybody to embrace that has only accelerated that. So let's maybe open forum. What are your thoughts? What have you seen change over the last couple of years as you know, all of us were forced to evolve?
2: To me, it's been an interesting evolution that as I think about it for just the, the overall impact of COVID, I know a lot of people talked about COVID as like the The world changed and a whole bunch of stuff broke and changed. And, and like, not that I want to be dismissive of that, but when I, when I look at that relative to our industry, frankly, I, I don't see a lot that broke or like made some unexpected hard left turn. Mm -hmm. What I see overall is trends and things that were already underway that were already happening very slowly. That just happened very, very quickly. We had like five to seven years worth of industry evolution in the span of about 12 to 18 months. Mm. And so when I look at domains like growth of growth of digital, the way that consumers meet online, right? We've been most advisors had had a little bit of video meeting and online interaction it just now all of a sudden, we had to do 100% by Zoom through COVID. And now as we come out the other end, it turns out that a whole lot of clients actually want to do at least a material number of meetings on Zoom and via video. I don't think you know video chats didn't become a thing because of the pandemic. The technology was there. We were already moving this direction. But lo and behold, we got there a whole lot quicker. The thing that I think becomes the biggest deal from the marketing perspective, though, that I, I really think... COVID indirectly became such a catalyst of is once you get to the point as a client where you're comfortable with a virtual meeting, and I'll at least call it a mostly virtual advisor, right? I mean, I've seen advisors that even had an entirely local practice where clients like, yeah, I just, I don't really want to like drive in traffic and come across town. Like we only live 11 miles away, but I'd actually still rather meet with you like 80% of the time virtually. And not to come to your office. And then obviously the clients who are more geographically distant, where it doesn't even matter whether they're 11 miles or 1100 miles away, it's, it's, the, it's the same video meeting. Once that geographic barrier breaks down, you know, from the advisor end, we kind of talk about it as, well, now I can like prospect nationally and I can take advantage of some of these other marketing tactics that, that work a little bit better online without, without geographic lines. But to me, like the thing that I think is still underappreciated from most advisors is we look at how marketing changes, how client acquisition changes from our perspective when the geographic barriers break down. Like, hey, maybe I should do a little more search engine optimization or social media or webinars or something online. And I don't think we think enough about how it changes from the client's perspective. So... When I think about like clients going and looking for an advisor, like overgeneralizing a little, I kind of put it into two camps. The first are local stakes problems. Things I've just got to deal with that are fairly straightforward and proximal, or I just want someone in the area that can solve this problem for me. So when I bought a house 10 years ago, Uh, I bought a house about a mile and a half up the street from my folks. They still live in the house that I grew up in. They've been in the the neighborhood here for 45 years now. So you you want to ask me about tax law, like I'll do internal revenue code sections off the top of my head. You want to ask me about plumbing, I'm hopeless. I don't know anything about anything in my house and how it works. So the first time my toilet breaks, I call my father. (laughs) I say, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And he says like, I call this plumber. We've had them out to the house many times. They do good work. They'll even come out on Sunday and, and their rates are reasonable. It's like, thank you, dad. Right. Just, okay. there's like a certain level of local stakes. I just need something done in a reasonably timely manner. It's just easy to go local. I ask my friends and a family for a referral and, and off I go. And that works in, you know, it works well in the plumbing realm. It works well in the financial advisor. I'm like, I've had this 401k, I've been meaning to roll over for a long time, or like my my business needs to get a profit sharing plan set up. Like who set up your plan? Like, can I just can he or she come out to my office and set this up for our firm? The interesting shift that's happening though. So it's one thing when you're dealing with local stakes problems. It's another thing when you're dealing with high stakes problems. So if you imagine for a moment, like you're coming back from the doctor and the news is not good. You have a very rare, potentially fatal disease. There may only be like a half a dozen doctors anywhere in the world who even know how to treat this because it's so rare. Not many people around. And your doctor has no idea where to send you because she's never seen this before. And so you have to now figure out, in a very high stakes situation, how are you going to find the doctor who will save your life? And the answer for basically everyone immediately is like, I'm just sitting there on my smartphone on Google, like I'm searching around for medical research and who's published and looking up reviews of the doctors. And like, if my life is on the line, I'm first, of all, I'm not asking friends and family for a referral. Cause they don't even like the odds that the expert I need is even local is like negligible. There would be no reason why I would be in my friends and family network in the first place. And frankly, if the stakes are high enough, like, yeah, I'll get on a plane and go pretty much anywhere in the world. If it's going to save my life, yep. like geography doesn't matter anymore. And, and the higher the stakes the problem, the less the geography matters. And so when you now bring that into the financial advisor realm, where maybe it's not my life is on the line for a big disease, it's my business is on the line because I'm getting ready to sell it in a liquidity event. The one biggest financial event of my entire lifetime is sell a medical practice that I've spent 27 years building as the lead doctor. And I'm trying to figure out how to maximize the value of my medical practice. And there's some advisor that's halfway across the country that can show me how to turn my $3 million medical practice sale into a $3.3 million medical practice sale by getting another 10% on the valuation of the business. I don't have any problem getting on a plane and going a 1,000 miles to see that advisor because I'm going to net another $300,000 out of the sale price of my practice. And of course, when I now sell my practice for $3.3 million, guess who gets the money. Mm -hmm. And so this, the fundamental phenomenon to me that's changing is people with high stakes problems are less and less going to their friends and family networks for referrals and more and more going online because they can, because the internet is this amazing finding machine to find like the six people in the world who are an expert in your particular problem. If the stakes are high enough, you're certainly willing to travel to go see them. And the irony out is with the, with the rise of zoom video and the rest of the pandemic, we've never been more comfortable at any point Working with someone who's not local, which just means like the threshold of what's a high enough stakes problem that we move away from local stakes, friends and family referrals and we go online for virtual solutions like that thresholds getting lower. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't even just need my life on the line. I can just be fairly sick and feel really bad and just want someone to help me. Or, you know, it might have been like I'll set up the local profit sharing plan with a local advisor, but I'm going across the country when I'm selling my medical practice now suddenly we're more and more flexible of like, well, maybe I'm just a partner in the practice, but I'm still willing to do this. Or, maybe I'm making partner and I still want to go and look online for someone who's been going to work with me and building wealth for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Or maybe I'm just a really high income doctor. And I feel like I got a lot of complexity because I got the medical practice. I want to buy in someday. I've still got six figures of student loan debt. I want to pay down. I'm hoping to start a family soon. I got a whole bunch of other stuff coming at me. I got no problem paying thousands of dollars in a financial planning fee, but I want someone who understands like, Doctor stuff and medical practices and buy ins and student loan debt and all the stuff that I'm balancing at once, not just like local advisor that a friend of mine also uses. Cause my friend's not a doctor in this exact same situation. I want someone for me because I'm feeling the complexity and I got some money to spend on a good advisor to help me through it. Yeah. So this, this phenomenon to me that's shifting is. We go online to find advice, the best advisor in the world when we have a high-stakes problem because at that point, it's worth the time to look and search and work with them even at a distance. And the more that we get comfortable with virtual and the better that in the internet gets at just finding things, the lower and lower that threshold is becoming. So we think of from the advisor end, like, hey, cool, I can work virtually and I can go online and do webinars and social media at the rest. But when you think about from the client perspective, like, look, if I just want a generic advisor that can do anything and everything for everyone, I can find that person up the street from a friends and family referral. If I'm looking for someone online, I don't look online for a financial advisor. I look online for a solution to my high stakes problem. And that shift to me is kind of the the, the digital marketing shift that most advisors are not capitalizing on yet. Because we're thinking about it from our end, hey, I'm going to go join social media platforms, and not from the client's end. They're not just following random people on Twitter for witty sayings to figure out who to give their life savings to, but they might be looking for who is an expert on the particular high-stakes problem that they've got. And we're going to work with you if you bring the answers to that, but only if you bring the answers to that. And it's it's a very different way of showing up in the digital realm.
0: Yeah and this this is not a new concept in finance that you know the riches are in the niches or however a different way you've heard that said but I can think of two real life examples uh there's an advisor that just specializes in McDonald's franchise owners um there's another one I can think of with interest rates spiking his group just focuses on pensions and those have been very negatively impacted with rising interest rates right and so they've got this, what I would call very niche problem that people all across America need help yep. with. And on the flip side of that, prior to COVID, I can speak to both of my parents. Maybe they had just kind of figured out how to use FaceTime on their iPhone, yeah. but they sure didn't know anything about Zoom. Uh-huh. Now it's the technology adoption on that yep. retirement aged, not as tech savvy individual. But now also now everybody has Zoom on their phone. Right. Yeah. And so it's also the network effect that's happening where, okay, they they maybe had a, a problem that they were niche that they could solve nationwide, but the their consumer base or prospect base was not really armed to be able to have that conversation well, virtually. Now they are. So that's well, another piece of that yeah. as well. well that and
2: I think. I think there's an important follow-on to recognize around that as well. And sort of this perception that we carried for. Like ten or twenty years of this kind of uh, this idea of like younger people are technology adopters and are willing to do computer stuff and work online, but quote unquote old people, seniors, i.e., retirees, for all those who work with retirees, aren't. And and to me, the, like the fundamental thing that I think the the industry is missing is, like, simply put, the y- your retired client of today is not your retired client of twenty years ago. Like, I put this in my context. The retired client 20 years ago was my grandparents. My grandfather was born in Eastern Europe in 1911, and he remembers when his family was emigrating to North America, the first time he got to Paris as an eight-year-old right after World War I, because it was the first time he saw the electric light. Mm. He was not so prepared for online video meetings when the internet showed up. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a different world in a different time. My parents, who are baby boomers and are today's retirees, they are retired in, in their 70s. My parents were computer scientists. They programmed computers for a living for 20 plus years because baby boomers Kind of had computers everywhere for the majority of their working years, maybe not the very beginning when they started their careers, but computers start showing up in offices by the 1980s. And if you're a boomer, that was somewhere in your 20s or 30s. So most of your career was in front of computers. So my parents have no problem dealing with computers. My grandparents would have been completely lost. And so it's not just a function of Older clients may have more trouble with computers and, hey, younger clients can handle it more. I think it's a more basic thing, which is just, look, where did computers show up in your life? The real challenge for retirees, I find when we were doing this 10, 20 years ago, was my retired clients retired mostly after computers came into the scene. Or at least if they hadn't retired by the time computers came into the scene, they were already 25, 30 years in their career, which meant if computers show up at that point, they just found like a young person in the office to do the computer things for them. And they wrote out the last five, yep. 10 years before retirement in order to do that. But now we live in a world where today's retires, I mean, particularly if you're marketing, my folks have been re- retired for 10 years. People who are reaching retirement age today are the later stage boomers. They had computers in their offices when they were 20. They've lived computers their entire life for the past, literally 40 plus years. So this idea that older clients are going to be tech averse, I think is going to end up blindsiding a lot of advisors that yes, there's always a subset of people, no matter how techy of a generation is that just say like, I, I don't want a screen. I want to sit in front of a person, but the generational effect of this idea that older retired clients just won't want to be technology adopters. like, it wasn't an age thing. It was a generation thing. And the reality is that generation is largely kind of wound through the process now. And certainly if you're marketing to retirees today, which is to where a lot of us are as advisors, like these are people who spent 40 years with computers in their lives. The idea that they will suddenly be computer averse when they're retired. I think is is going to be a startling misconception for a lot of the industry. And I to me is is why most firms did just fine as the pandemic broke and we all had to go on a Zoom. It's like, because these people have been using Zoom in their offices for the past 10, 15 years as well. Like it wasn't new. And when you look at the rotation of the the generations from there, like Gen X has been eligible for AARP for five or six years now. Like the front end of Gen X is past age 55 so pretty soon our retiree prospects are gen xers Mm -hmm. they were playing nintendo games when they were young children like they're fine with technology and so again when you bring that back to the advisor world yes if you want to solve low stakes local problems you can continue to find find clients locally but clients that have high stakes problems are increasingly going online and as the generations rotate through they are increasingly more comfortable going online because they've had the internet and computers for more and more of their entire lifetimes as well and i really think we're going to start seeing a fundamental shift in just how clients think about finding an advisor and engaging with an advisor because they have a very different comfort level with technology it's it's not an age thing it was a generational cohort thing and the non-computer adopting cohort is mostly
0: wound through the process at this point. Yeah, 100%. I'm very much aligned with that thought process. So let's transition. One of the things with technology and the internet is it's become really easy to access data. Yes. And there, I definitely saw a lot of this happen. You know, I got into business in 07 and as the idea of a financial plan has evolved, I remember first off, a lot of advisors way back when they didn't do the best job at building a financial plan. And part of that was it was dependent on the school of finance that you grew up in. Uh-huh. But there, then there became an evolution of this leather bound binder. I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Four oh, I used four. to use
2: the binding, yeah. like the binding machine. You would like punch all the pages and yes. then you would like layer them onto the little hooks and then close the binding
0: machine. Absolutely. And it almost became like this race to who could build the thickest, most yeah. data dense financial plan with all the charts and graphs yeah. and backing up all yeah. here give me this money because I'm doing such, you know, amazing planning. And now what I've started to see, and I know we have a mutual friend in Carl Richards who wrote a book called The One Page Financial Plan. Now we're almost starting to see it revert back the other way. And it's how can we simplify? The complexity, and you know, if you're building on a CFP standard, income, investments, taxes, healthcare, legacy estate, you know, all the worlds that that encompasses, that's a lot. But it's almost reverting back to can I get this complexity onto one page where it's simple and it makes sense to somebody that's like a fifth grader? So that's a really big topic. Let's just riff on that. What are your thoughts? What trends do you see? There's a really cool Twitter thread out there on like the best one page financial plans. Yeah, Um, Let's dive in on that topic.
2: So here's how I, how I would think about it from just sort of the, the advisor value proposition level, the big plan, the big plan, right? The big, big, beautiful leather bound plan to me was fundamentally about selling this value proposition of I'm smart. I've got expertise. Like you don't know financial things. I know financial things. I'm the expert. You pay me money as the expert. I do the analysis. You literally can't do by yourself. Mm -hmm. And I will bring you the results of this analysis of your very complex situation and provide you a series of recommendations. And, and just, it, it, that's like, that's fundamentally an expert transaction. And I think a, like a pretty good solid one from that, that perspective, right? In that domain basically like the better, the advisor, the thicker, the plan or more directly, like the better, the advisor, the longer the list of financial planning recommendations I can give you, right? Like. A good financial advisor can analyze this client and find eight recommendations. A great financial advisor can analyze the same client and find 13 recommendations. And then a fantastic leading financial advisor can take the same client's information and find 19 different financial planning recommendations that would add value in this client's life. Mm-hmm. And it was all built around the depth of expertise and our ability to show the expertise. The fundamental thing that I think is is shifting now is that the value equation is beginning to shift a little. We do still need to have the expertise, right? I'll just like say that out of the gate. Like you do still need to have the expertise. Otherwise, you're just giving recommendations that could be actually factually wrong and then people just get hurt out of ignorance. So the relevance of expertise doesn't go away. But we can't just be dispensers of expert information anymore. Because if you really just want expert information, if you want to ask a complex question and get get an answer to it, the internet's good at that. Apparently pretty soon ChatGPT is going to be good at that. Like computers are good at spitting out the answers to questions. And the the fundamental shift I think that's happening now is we're not just going to get paid based on having the answer, we're going to get paid to help clients implement the answer. Now, a lot of us historically have said, well, yeah, I do implementation. In fact, the roots of our industry was all about implementation because it was the insurance and investment product that we implemented that we got paid for to make the financial plan uh, economically viable for us to deliver. But we, to me, we kind of had this breakdown that when planning went towards expertise complexity and the plans got longer, right, the difference between a, an okay planner, a great planner, and an amazing planner was whether you found like eight or 13 or 19 financial planning recommendations for the client. But if you think about that from the client's perspective, like, you know what you do as a client when someone comes at you with 19 financial planning recommendations to add value in your financial life? You don't look at them and think, wow, that person is brilliant. Look at all the recommendations they came up with. The script in most clients has more something more along the lines of, wow, I didn't realize my life was that screwed up. Like, I didn't even know. I mean, I came to an advisor because I was not confident in my financial planning decisions in life. That's why I sought an advisor. But I actually didn't know I could make 19 different mistakes at once. Like, apparently, I'm so bad at this, I may as well just give up on financial life now. Like, I, you know, 19 recommendations basically means I get an F in life at this point. And it's just depressing. Like, it, I mean, it's just, it's outright depressing for clients to come at them with that many recommendations. It, it's demotivating and can be outright destructive because people just look at that and say, wow, like I'm basically a lost cause. I didn't even know I could do that many things wrong. But like, why even bother at this
0: point? And, and overwhelmed. Where do I? It-
2: Utterly, completely overwhelmed. Like, where do I even start? This is like, three years worth of work, like, and, you know, I was just hoping to, like, feel a little bit less pain. I actually feel worse about my financial life now than before I came into your office thinking I need help because I'm leaving your office realizing I'm far more gone than I even realized when I walked into your office. And so at the most basic level, if you want to think about how that translates, like, imagine a world where the primary way that an advisor is evaluated is the percentage of the financial planning recommendations that their clients actually implement. The percentage of financial planning recommendations that your clients actually implement. So you don't get credit for giving them a list of 19 and then having to be so overwhelmed that they leave and walk out the door. Giving them three that are meaningful and having to actually implement three is way better. Because frankly if they wanted the list of 19, they can probably at some point give their situation artificial intelligence and it'll list out 19 things that they could be doing differently. But again, that's just demotivating. Mm -hmm. If I want to get to what, what do I actually do to implement this? How do I get to a decision I'm comfortable with, have buy and feel motivation to follow through on the recommendation and actually take action to implement it? It's an entirely different skill set, And to say the least, what it starts with is not coming to the table with 19 financial planning recommendations and 172 page financial plan, because that's just setting up the overwhelm. I'm just so far gone. I may as well give up on this. And that to me is really the essence of what's coming forth in these one page financial plans. Like it's not just about simplifying down and getting it all to one page. The common theme that I see on most of those one page plans. Comes down to, to sort of three core elements. There's something that reminds people about the purpose, the goals, the intention of this all, right? Carl likes to call it the statement of financial purpose. Different advisors do it different ways, but it's that touchdown to come back to that we all go through with clients where you say, like, why are you doing all this in the first place? And they get back to that, like, because, you know, m- money means safety and money gives me security so that I can live the life I enjoy or money allows me to have the generosity to support my family and organizations the way I want. Like, we've all got our different things, but
0: it, it kind of sounds like it kind of sounds like Michael would be the like the Simon Sinek start with why or Covey's yeah. seven habits start with the end in mind. So, so it's like, hey, here's why we're actually doing this. It's like, here's why we're doing this.
2: Mm-hmm. Here's how we're progressing. Like, one of the interesting things about what most one-page plans that I've seen is that they, they don't just capture a moment in time. They capture progress over time. Mm. Here's how your network's progressing. Here's how your savings are improving. So a reminder of we'll, we'll call it the why, a sense of progress, and what are we doing next. One of the most interesting things to me about almost every one-page plan that I see got action items. It's got next steps, not 19 planning recommendations, the three or fewer that we're working on right now. And then every time we update that one pager, they, they change as we check things off the list and bring new things into the picture. And so that combination of sense of purpose, sense of progress, and what are our next steps? Like those are the elements that drive action, that drive behavior change. Like you can do it. Here's why you're doing it. You are already succeeding and making progress. Here's the thing that we're going to tackle next. And as we check that off, it feels really good. And then we want to do more and we continue the momentum. And so the essence to me of what you're seeing, like, yes, one page plan is neat in and of itself. And, and I love some of the beautiful ones that people have put out there. But the real thing to me that's happening underneath is we're beginning this shift from, My value is I give you this expertise, which I demonstrate through the length of the plan and the weight of the plan and the volume of financial planning recommendations. And we're moving into a realm where we're judged by action and implementation. And the tools to help people take action are not the same as the tools that are built just to show our expertise. And so the expertise still has to be there. Even most advisors that I know that are doing one-page financial plans, like, the rest of the financial plan is still there. Like it's still on the software. They may still print it. It's like a one-page plan with a 50-page technical appendix behind it because we do have to still, I think, just, From the advisor, and we have to show our expertise at some point. Otherwise, like I can write all of I can write all of your financial planning recommendations on three by five index card. But if I actually give it to you as a three by five index card, you're going to assume I didn't even do the work, and you're not going to take the recommendations because they're not credible, even though they actually really might be the right thing to do. So there is still a need that I think we have to demonstrate credibility and to demonstrate our expertise and to show that when I give you this short list of things to do, it's because there's many, many, many pages of work and analysis that went into this. But the essence, I think, of the shift that you're seeing is when you start driving towards questions like how do you maximize the number of recommendations that the client actually implements, you don't give them a list of 19 action items to implement.
0: One of our top firms that we work with, they make the analogy very similar to how you are right now. It's like if you're the president of the United States of America, you've got all of these branches of government, right? You've got the war in Ukraine going on. You've got the trade deficit with China. You've got inflation and how we're going to tackle that. And you have stacks upon stacks upon stacks of reports. Well, how does the president of the United States of America make decisions? Well he's got executive summaries mm-hmm. summarize like the big ideas out of the report so they can make decisions yep. and get stuck in the minutia of all of the data and it, that's kind of what you're describing there is hey yeah. all of the financial planning is still backing this up but we just summarized it to here's the why here's the progress here's the next step yeah. and i love that so well i'm looking at the clock here we got a lot to talk about not yeah. much So we're gonna transition to another thing as we were kind of preparing for this conversation before we started recording. One of the things this next chapter for me here at Triad, we talk about do business and do life. And I grew up in finance as you did. And I think it's safe to say there can be some egos in this space. There can be- A little bit. A little bit. Just a little bit. pop, Pop up, cross paths a time or two. There can be really- Uh, I've seen it and it's unfortunate. I've seen a lot of advisors in the pursuit of growing a business, you know, hitting that, you know, I brought in 50 million of assets this year. I want to bring in a hundred next year, 150, 200. And it's gets, it gets very like almost laser focused on production and top producer and parade across stage and get recognized. And what oftentimes gets sacrificed is health, Mm -hmm. family, marriage the stuff that we actually go to work to, you know, whatever's important in their life to actually have that time and money and well-being to be able to celebrate it with those that we love and are important to us. And one of the things we talk about is it's, it's balance and it's integration here, grow a business that blesses your life, doesn't become your life. And so on that note, doing a little research before we hopped on here, you do a really cool study. Yeah. Uh, it's called the well-being study. Yes. And it's really a survey for advisors in our space of like, hey, dude, how are you doing? <laughs> so I would love for you to dive into your findings there, maybe some surprising data and what that looks like. And maybe we can help a few advisors that are hitting that red line burnout that often, you know, many advisors, especially top performing advisors, yeah base in our industry.
2: Yeah. I I appreciate the discussion around it. This, this is something I've, I've long been focused on just uh, really, I guess, as you said, like from my own perspective, from my own journey of, of going through the business and, and this phenomenon that I found is, as I became more successful in my business, as I worked with other advisors that were more successful and basically saw this phenomenon that like, I'm talking to more people who are making more money, but I'm not talking to people who seem any like happier in what they're doing. In fact, in general, I would find that the larger the advisory firm, the more stressed that they, that they tended to be. And it, and it kind of opened this curiosity loop for me around what, what was going on and why that was. And so what I found in that domain is a couple of things. One, you know, at the most basic level, we find that. The happiest advisors are not the ones who earn the most money. They're the ones who earn the most money on their time. Mm. They're the ones that have the best dollars to time ratio, which at the most basic level, you can essentially boil down to the happiest advisors we find are the ones who earn the most dollars per hour for the work that they do. And then they, work the number of hours they want to work to enjoy their life. So the advisor who can make 300 grand working 30 hours a week is way happier than the advisor who's making 400 grand working 50 hours a week. Because the second one is making 25% more, but they're working uh, a lot more. And so they're not happier. And it's kind of, if you do the math, income divided into hours worked, like it's not better when you boil that down more directly, what we really find in practice is that the happiest advisors are the ones who tend to have the smallest number of clients who write the biggest checks, mm. because that's what, that's what maximizes that dollars per hour happiness. And, you know, there's a part of it. that's like, well, I've Wish that was entirely the case because it, you know, you can sort of take this the logical extreme of like, you know, the, the happiest advisors have like two billionaire clients and then don't do anything else, but get paid a ton of money by their by their bajillionaire clients. And to be fair, I don't know if it quite goes to that extreme because we can only find so many advisors who work with billionaires. But that phenomenon that when we look at the advisors who have the highest well-being consistently, what we find is they end up with being advisors who have fewer than 50 clients. Who pay a really nice fee, might be five grand, 10 grand, 20 grand plus, and they're making really good dollars working relatively few hours. And what they get from that is control over their time. Right. At that point, you're not answering your schedule to an unmanageable number of clients and you're always trying to try to keep up with everything. You've got a comfortable client base who pays you well for the work that you do. You're making more than enough money to achieve your goals and you got a good amount of time. Cause the reality is if you can get a solid base of clients that pay you well for your time, it once you're kind of established with them in an ongoing client relationship, it's just not that time intensive on an ongoing basis.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean that not rocket science there. I'll tell you one of our findings on our side To your point that you kind of kicked this off with, we've often seen in our world, and our world, when I really define triad partners, as you know, in our space, Michael, we've got a lot of what I would call heavy direct response. Our industry grew up, you know, a lot of public events, live events, TV, radio, manufacturing appointments. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, it's they're a victim of their own success, where they were so good at that. Now Mm -hmm. they're drowning in... Appointments and service, and yeah, we, we call it the advisor in charge model because it's actually counterintuitive. Because you know the, the young go-getter financial advisor that has a lot of success and does really well, actually, it's all on them in most firms where they grew up because they <coughs> didn't have a support team, right? And now as they transition and try to become a business owner, which might mean training other advisors to do what they do, like 20 or 30 years of knowledge transfer out of their brain, it's counterintuitive. It's actually the opposite skill of what got them yep. to where they're at today. Yep. And it's really hard to deconstruct those habits of if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's oftentimes what we see as that gap too, is you can't be the financial advisor, you now have to be the CEO. Yep. And any Anything that you've seen, you've done a lot of podcasts what? with a lot of well, yeah, I hailed tremendously. What, what takeaways do you have there? Yeah,
2: so we, we had a, an interesting version of this that we actually found in the, the, the first version of our well-being study that we did around this many years ago, but kind of going directly to that phenomenon, we found the unhappiest advisors have $225 million of asset center management. The unhappiest advisors have $225 million of asset center management. Mm and it's not a random number. What you find, so if you drill that from the practice metrics, so advisory firms, at least in the AUM model, we tend to talk about the proverbial 1% fee, but the truth is most firms don't actually literally get 1% of their top-line assets. We got breakpoints. We got a bigger client that got a discount. We got some family members we householded in. We got a few clients that we made some compromises on. When you really drill down The typical revenue yield of an advisory firm, so just total fees divided into total assets, is not 1%. It usually comes out somewhere between about 70 to 80 basis points. Mm -hmm. So a firm with $225 million under management typically has something like $1.7 million of revenue. Now, from a business metrics end, advisory firms are service businesses. And in order to support a service business, like every X dollars of revenue, you have to hire another person to do the work to service the revenue. Not every single one is necessarily a client facing advisor, but you need so many advisors per client, which means you need so many advisors for every dollar of revenue. Then you need so much support staff per advisor, per client, per dollar of revenue. And when you run those metrics across advisory firms, they're actually remarkably consistent. Most advisory firms in their first million dollars of of revenue, Tend to average about $150,000 to two hundred thousand of revenue per staff. So by the time you're at a million dollars, you're typically five people. You get a little bit of economies of scale once you start going from there. Advisory firms that have a couple million dollars are usually more like two hundred twenty five to two hundred fifty thousand dollars of revenue per client. So by the time you're at two hundred twenty five million dollars under management, you're typically about seven or eight staff members. Now, if you look up any management book about how many direct reports a manager can have and be effective. The answer is usually about six to eight direct reports beyond that. Just, you can't really stay as invested and involved with the people and it starts to peel out. And so not coincidentally advisory firm owners start getting really unhappy at the exact threshold that they're getting the maximum number of direct reports, because as an advisor, not only if I built this firm and I did this, do I have six to eight direct reports? I also still have like 172 clients (laughs) I'm supposed to be servicing as well. So I'm literally doing a full-time manager's job for six to eight people and a full-time advisor's job with 100 plus clients at the same time. And it turns out if you do two jobs in one business, you end up being very unhappy. So what we find is very much driven by this phenomenon you're talking about. We hit this capacity wall where we actually, frankly, go past the capacity wall where I need way more team to support all these clients. But then I've got to manage the team and I've got to manage the clients at the same time. And the only way you get through that is either you have to shift from being advisor to advisor CEO and transition the clients and start building staff and scaling an organization. Or, well, I guess there's really three options. You have to to do that transition or you have to hire one of those people, right? Like hire a CEO or find a business partner who wants to do that part so you can go do the client stuff. Or... You have to, as I put it, right-size your practice, which means find a way to get rid of those clients and let them go so that you can solve this problem for yourself. And the and the challenge for most advisors is we get so obsessed with, I worked so hard for that client, I can't possibly let them go. We refuse to let the client go. We just say, I'm going to hire a younger junior advisor. I'm going to hand it off to them. It's like, dude, you got rid of the client, but you took on a full-time direct report, not solving the problem. You just have to manage the person Instead of managing the clients, and you still hit the exact same wall and bottleneck. We just published separately our our the latest edition of our advisor productivity study that finds like a perfect upward trend. The more employees an advisory firm has, the more time that they spend as an advisor in the business. That just the whole idea of like, well, once I finally get to two or three team members, I can delegate all this stuff and I'll have more free time literally never happened. Like you to find it anywhere in the data. You go from one to two staff members, your time goes up. You go from two to three, it goes up more. You go to three to four, it goes up more. You go four to five, it goes up more. Like it just keeps going up because every time you try to hand off clients but keep them in the firm, you just end out with more employees to manage. And so either you make the full-on shift to advisor CEO and say, I'm going to scale an entire organization with the layers beneath me. So you get out of that trap. Or you say stuck in it, and we find advisors just tend to get unhappier and unhappier because the industry, to me, just in the aggregate, it's all built around this kind of more, more, more thing, right? The only people who ever end out on the podium at the annual conference is the advisors who grew the most and brought in the most, right? Nobody has a conference that says, like, let's put the advisors up on the podium who figure out how to make the most money while also making 100% of their kids' soccer games,
0: Hey, you haven't been to one of our conferences, my man. All right. well, if you're running we it, actually, I would love to see that. Uh, we actually just our our most prestigious award. We call it the DBDL Award. It's the Do Business Do Life Award. And this year we gave it to an advisor named Tom, who, when we met him, twenty two appointments a week. Woo! Yee-haw! And he was falling into that exact same trap that you're talking about. More, 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 more appointments. Just running himself ragged. His wife, literally, when we met him said he's going to kill himself if he keeps running at this rate. And we helped him build out infrastructure, really divide his business into three businesses within one, which is a marketing business, a sales business, an operations business. Yeah. He empowered a COO. There you go. And he went to less than five appointments a week and almost doubled his practice this year. Yeah. Obviously, I also empowered a couple other advisors on the team. Yeah. So anyway, it is possible. I would just say most in our industry are not focusing on that because... Hey,
2: like it's a transition, right? You know, he he went from twenty-two appointments <laughs> down to less than five. Like he's fundamentally changed the nature and the role of what he does in the business. A hundred. like that's fine for the folks that do it. I think the challenge for a lot is like, I got into this business because I like sitting across from clients, yeah. doing the client thing. Like that's great, more power to you. But if that's your thing, then you got to own that's your thing. Which means there's a limited capacity. Like there's only so many seats on the client bus. And at some point you have to just actually get to the point that you can say no, because if you keep saying yes, and then you just try to add advisors behind you in order to do that, like the time just gets pulled away and the stress builds up and the rest of the challenge builds up. And just, that's why we find the unhappiest advisors are $225 million under management. And it's that number in part, because if you try to grow past that and you don't otherwise make this transition, things just start breaking. Yeah. Like turnover picks up, advisors leave, and then they take clients. So like I got to 275 million and now I'm back to 190 because one of the advisors left and took a whole bunch. And like just other bad stuff starts happening if we don't get comfortable with what we just really want to do. But recognizing that you don't have to stop growing by acknowledging I'm gonna have a limited client base. It just means, you know, like Make a list of all your clients, rank them by the revenue that they pay the firm. Draw a line across the middle, and from now on, every time you you're only allowed to add clients above the line, and every time you add a client above the line, you have to subtract one below the line, Mm -hmm. and your business will grow every year, and your income will grow every year, and you won't have to work more hours. And if you're already buried, every time you add one above the line, you subtract two below the line, and you get your time back.
0: Well, and on that note, we've seen offices do that exact. Thing you're talking about, they just bump their minimum, the founding advisor, yeah. and then they're training a junior yeah. advisor that basically, so they don't have to fire, assuming it makes yep. mathematical sense for that client to be a part of the firm. And they're just yep. handing off, inviting yeah, junior advisor.
2: The caveat the, the is you got you got to be ready to manage people yep. and change your role, or you got to be ready to genuinely hire the not inexpensive, not revenue producing. <laughs> coo and management staff infrastructure to do that and you can there obviously there are firms that have scaled very very large doing that but it's a fundamentally different role for us as the advisor and the lead and so you know kind of getting back to your earlier comment around right like simon to start with why like you have to get back to what your purpose and goal was in the industry in the first place like some of us just really are wired to build big old enterprises like yeah. if that's you more power to you a lot of us really just got in this because we want to sit across from clients and serve clients and give advice and feel good when they take our advice and, and watch them get to a better place. And if that's you, just be careful who the role model is that you put up on the pedestal mm-hmm. because if your role model is only the people that do more, 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 that's not a path to work-life balance. That's not a path to healthy well-being. That's not a path to control and autonomy of your time you're essentially surrendering all that stuff to say, I'm going to be like the person who's growing huge numbers and probably has terrible work-life balance. And if you emulate them, that may be what you get.
0: Yeah. I love your comment on dollars to time ratio and tracking it that way. Okay. Well, I know we're at the end of our time here. Last question for you, Michael. Yes, sir. So we talk a lot about here. It's the name of the show, Do Business, Do Life, which is kind of the topic we're on right now. But if you had to say, this is Michael Kitsis' definition of, do business do life what would that be oh man
2: at a high level i would say so i i'm a big fan of kind of this movement away from talking about things like work life balance and and starting to talk about work life integration and just figuring out like where where the two blend and come together so my world these days i live a mostly work from home environment and so i do work a lot of hours but I can I can work through the day and then go and hang out with the kids and play games and do stuff and do bedtime routine. And like, I, you know, I go to sleep later in the because I'm a grown up. So like I can come do some email stuff again at nine or ten at night after after they're down or I'll do a little work while they go off for swim practice Saturday mornings because my wife will grab for swim practice and the house is really quiet. So I can do a little bit of stuff on on Saturday morning. And then I just go out and can see games and competitions. So finding those ways just to integrate and blend them together to me is, is very powerful, but all of it comes down to getting really clear on what the, what the boundaries are like, this is when I stop working and I'm just stepping out of the office space and I'm not looking at the phone for emails and the rest. Until I'm back on for a little bit of work time in the evening or like I'm going to do a little bit of stuff on Saturday morning. But when they get fr- back from swim practice at 1030, like I'm closing the computer and I'm, I'm not doing anything else. at work for the rest of the day. And so finding those ways to integrate and then setting the boundaries to me, I find is much more powerful than trying to find just sort of this mystical balance thing that at least living, living a life as a business owner just doesn't work well because. Business ebbs and flows, as we were talking about at the beginning. It's a little bit of a roller coaster, and like it's not always conducive to tightly defined balance. Just the 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 business is not stable enough to balance against. But I can figure out how to integrate it.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, and uh, as always, thanks for popping on here and just sharing your wisdom. Always enjoy every conversation we have, and look forward to the next time we cross paths in person. Awesome. Likewise, thank you, Brad. And Congratulations again on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. We'll see you. Absolutely. Okay. On to this week's featured review. It comes to us from user R-U-S-S Russ out on the Apple podcast app. Excited for DBDL! Five stars. I'm a young advisor turning 31 here soon with six years into the business and building my own. And I'm very excited for the new podcast. I enjoyed learning about Brad's journey and can't wait to see what's in store as I'm looking to grow my business to be one where my work and family will be integral parts and I can be a very present parent but also change the lives of my clients. I come from a collegiate football background and love to learn from others who are successful as I believe that iron sharpens iron and I feel like I'm going to get a lot of great takeaways that I can add or enhance my business with as I begin the journey further into my 30s and for the next 30 to 40 years in the business. Russ, I'm assuming this is Russ, the walk-on at, at Ohio State. I know we've connected a couple times on Facebook, and uh, Russ, thanks for the kind words. Means a lot. Also, as a former collegiate football player, I will say one of the things that athletics has has really, you know, set me up for is just the the work ethic and the mentality that it takes to have success or to succeed or to get where you want to go. And so. sure you've got a lot of that. I I know you've played around with the idea of starting a podcast yourself. So I really want to challenge you to take that leap. Getting uncomfortable leads to all the growth that I've had in life. So on the the piece that you mentioned about just working to build a business that serves your clients, but also allows you to serve your family, I couldn't challenge you enough to um, make sure you hold true to that. That's not always easy. There will definitely be days where you'll get pulled in all directions, Um, But I'll tell you one thing right now. I'm sitting in Colorado. My daughter Nellie is out here on a business trip and uh, so flew out and she decided to come with me. And that's what we call doing business and doing life where I got a fun father-daughter trip and was also able to do some business along the way. So get creative as you think through how to do that. As I record this, uh, we're just getting ready to go have an adventure in Colorado somewhere. And, um, so it is possible. You just have to be intentional with it. And if you have not, um, I know many of you love the episode I did with Jim Shields family board meeting. Uh, he wrote that book on my, uh, former show. Go get that book. Um, change my life just talks about how to intentionally do one-on-one meetings with your kids on a consistent basis. And I'll tell you that it has been one of the biggest factors in just keep an incredible relationship, uh, with your kids and keeping that balance in there. And by the way, you can do it with your spouse too. Uh, I know Sarah and I try to hit weekly date nights. Most weeks we do. uh, If there's not business travel and just maintaining that relationship uh, with your significant other is also going to be key as far as keeping that balance. So Russ, thanks for the kind words. Appreciate them. Thanks for listening in. And uh, we'll catch you all on next week's show. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask if you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.